Number two, he describes who God favors. And number three, he describes who God judges. We saw last time in verse one that God is the sovereign one, which is to say he has absolute authority all of the time without exception. We also saw that God is the transcendent one, meaning he is utterly distinct from his creation, completely above it, completely beyond it, completely over it. In verse 2, we saw who God favors, the one who is humble, the one who is contrite of spirit, and the one who trembles at his word. In other words, the one who fears him. Fear of God is reverential awe of him. Today, we will see the one who God judges. Chapter 66, verses 3 through 6 are our passage today. Let me read them, and then we'll look at them in a bit more detail. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments and will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my namesake, have said, let Yahweh be glorified that we may see your glory. But they will be put to shame. Here we're seeing in verse 3 these odd comparisons. Right? You see these strange connections in verse 3. In describing the people's worship, God says, when you offer an ox, it's like offering human sacrifice in my eyes. When you offer a lamb as a sacrifice to me, it's like offering a dog. A dog under, under the Mosaic law was an unclean animal. When you offer a grain offering to me, it's like offering pig's blood, another unclean animal under the Mosaic law. When you burn incense to me, God says, it's like praising an idol. He's saying, your worship is disgusting to me. Your worship is repugnant to me. And that's why he uses at the end of verse 3 a very strong word. He says, your worship is like abominations. That's the very last word of verse 3. He said the same thing through his prophet at the beginning of the book because the book of Isaiah is kind of book-ended with this concept of the disgusting nature of the people's worship before God. Isaiah 1, verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God says the same thing through his prophet Amos in Amos 5.21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Why does God speak like this? Why does God speak like this 
with respect to the offerings that he has required to be given to him. I mean, the Mosaic law is full of requirements that Israel make offerings, peace offerings, offer an ox that you've sacrificed, a, a, a lamb, grain offerings. It's full of requirements about festivals and feasts, the Passover, the festival of booths. Why does God speak like this with respect to the offerings that his people are giving to Kim? What he's saying in Isaiah 66 and Isaiah 1 in Amos 5 is the same thing. He's saying it just with different words. He's saying that you are coming to me, that you are engaging in religious activities with an attitude of pride, with an attitude of rebellion, a rebellious heart. Worship always requires submission to God. It was that way in Isaiah's day, and it's that way today. Worship requires an attitude of abject humility. When you engage in religious activities with a prideful heart, which is what the people were doing, which is what we do in the 21st century, you're not worshiping God. When you engage in religious rituals with an attitude of pride, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. That's what the the people are doing, and this is why it is such an abomination to God. That person who engages in religious activities with a prideful attitude is using God's name and using God's house and using God's word and God's rituals to make themselves look good, at least to try and make themselves look good before God and before men. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told? The parable that he told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? Let's look at that. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. This is a parable that Jesus tells, and it's a great contrast between the one who engages in religious activities with a humble heart and the one who engages in those activities with a prideful heart. Luke chapter 18 verse 9 begins like this. Excuse me. And he, the he there is Jesus, Luke 18 9, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now Jesus is going to tell a parable about pride and about self-righteousness and about phony worship. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Remember the tax collectors, just pause there for a minute. Remember the tax collectors are the scum of the scum in Israel. Because the tax collectors, they make the covenants, a contract with Gentiles. And it's not just a contract of, hey, Gentile, will you come paint my house? It's a contract with the Romans to collect the taxes for the Romans. And what the tax collector would do is he would take his piece of the pie. The the, the Romans didn't care how the taxes were collected as long as they were collected. And so if the collector needed to extort or needed to, to... to add another 10% or 15% or whatever he wanted to do, as long as he squeezed the taxes out of the people, the Israelites, to give them to the Romans, the Romans were happy. And so the normal MO of the tax collector was to abuse the people. And so the reason why the tax collectors were viewed with such disgust by Israel 
is because they would extract the taxes and give them to Rome so that the Romans could use them on their pagan purposes, on their pagan temples, their pagan priests, their pagan wars. The tax collector is viewed with great disgust in Israel. That's the kind of the, the, the backdrop to this parable. So in verse 10, two men get, engage in religious worship. They engage in the same religious worship. The same religious activities. The Pharisee and the tax collector, they each go to the temple. That's part of the religious activities that was required of them. They each go to the temple and they each pray. Two religious activities. One will leave condemned by God and the other will leave, will leave blessed by God. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax, tax collector. God, I thank you that I am so awesome. I thank you that I am so amazing, and I am so righteous and so good, unlike this scum who is over there, this tax collector. That's the way the prayer is going, right? This is a prideful prayer that the Pharisee is praying. The Pharisee isn't praying to God. He's using prayer as a means. He's manipulating prayer to use it as a means to prop himself up. He's praying to himself about how amazing he is. Keep reading. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. I, pray, I pay tithes, tithes of all that I get. You see, the Pharisee's not praising God. He's praising himself. The temple was a very public place. So as the Pharisee looks up to heaven with his eyes open and praises God in his counterfeit prayer, counterfeit praise, everybody hears. Right? He's not in the Holy of Holies where there's no one. If he had been in there, he'd be dead immediately because you don't walk into the Holy of Holies. He's in the public area of the temple. He's in the court of the temple. So he's making this prayer. Everyone hears how he thinks he's so amazing, and he looks up to heaven. He wants everyone to know how he dutifully does his religious activities. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, the tax collector acknowledges his unworthiness before God. He acknowledges his absolute need for mercy from God, which is to say he is humble, he is contrite of spirit, and he trembles at God's word. He trembles at the presence of God. Remember the temple, in the temple resides the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies. The reason you went up to the temple to pray is because that's where God was his special presence among the Israelites. And so this tax collector approaches God in abject humility. Look at verse 14, how Jesus describes the product of these two things, the product of the Pharisee's prayer versus the product of the tax collector's prayer. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Jesus repeats the principle that runs from Genesis through Revelation, that God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted over and over and over. Now, you don't fully see it today. It's not on total display today. It will be on total display when the king returns. In Luke chapter 18, verse 14, here we are seeing Jesus' description where this Jesus' parable, and in this parable, both men engaged in religious activities. They both went, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they both went up to the temple to pray, and one walked out of the temple still being under God's wrath, unjustified. The other, God looked on with favor, the tax collector, that is. He looked at his religious activity with favor. In fact, he left blessed because he's justified. That means he's now admitted into the kingdom of God. The point is that God does not value phony religious activity. In fact, it is disgusting before God. That's why you see the word abomination in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 3. Please turn back to Isaiah chapter 66. What we're seeing is fakers. Do you understand that a Christian who walks around as a faker, as a fake worshiper. Do you understand that we emit an odor? We stink. We stink. And the unbeliever can smell it. The unbeliever, the atheist can smell the stench of the Christian who's a faker. Don't do that. The unbeliever can smell it and God can smell it. That's what we're seeing in verse 3. The worshipers are fakers. They're posers. This is why God describes their offerings as disgusting, as repugnant before Him. They were trying to deceive God and to deceive their fellow Israelites. They were acting as if God were a fool, as if God doesn't know that their hearts are far from Him, as if God doesn't know that they walked into church, I mean to the synagogue, Not that the church is the same as the synagogue, but they're both a place of worship. They act as if God doesn't know that they walk into the place of worship, that they hear the teaching of the Word of God, that they offer their sacrifices, and they do it in a way that is for their own self-aggrandizement, to get their pride stroked. Look at me. Do you know how awesome I am? Look at me. You know how righteous, how good I am? That was the attitude. It was a prideful attitude. And so they acted as if God were a fool. They mocked God, and God will never, ever, ever be mocked. Look at the last part of verse 3. As they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments, and I will bring on them what they dread, because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen, and they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Here you see these contrasts, these contrasts between the false worshipers, the posers, and God. They delighted in their abominations, yet these were the things in which God did not delight. They chose their own ways, so God chose their punishments, there's always, always, always a reckoning. God gives us the freedom to choose for Him or against Him, but He does not give us the freedom 
to choose the consequences of our sin. God chooses that. God chooses the consequences of our rebellion against Him. And don't miss the precision of God in verse 4. Don't miss the precision of the punishments that God chooses. Being omniscient, God knows exactly, exactly the punishment to choose that will hurt us. In verse 4 it says, He chooses the punishments that they dread. The Hebrew word there for dread is magora, which means an object of horror or an object of dread. Magora is only used two other times in the Bible. In Proverbs 10, 24, we read this, What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Do you understand what that verse says? Do you see what that verse says? It says that God is a wrathful God. It says that God is a righteous, wrathful God. And in His righteousness and in His wrath, He chooses the punishments that the unbeliever dread. In His wrath, He selects specific punishments that are the source of unbelievers' fear, that are the source of unbelievers' dread. This is how terrifying the wrath of God is. The context here appears to be an eternal context. That's why it ends with the phrase, everlasting foundation. <clears throat> That's an everlasting foundation for the righteous. This is an eternal forever context. And so for the righteous, there's an everlasting foundation. But for the unrighteous, the one who never was declared righteous, the one who never received justification from God, there is dread and his fears will come upon him. That's the language of verse 24. We know from the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13, that there will be degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. Everyone who was in the lake of fire, every believer, will live in eternity in a place of torments. That's what the end of Revelation 20 says. It says that there will be torment day and night forever. So the lake of fire is a place of forever torment. But there will be degrees, gradations, of torment in the lake of fire. Degrees of punishment for eternity for the unbeliever. We see that from Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13 and from other passages as well where Jesus says to towns that he did his, his miracles in, it will be worse for you than for the men of Sodom. Because in the towns that Jesus did his miracles, they saw God in the flesh perform his work. And so what Jesus is saying there is, in the day of judgment, there will be degrees of punishment. And if I understand Proverbs 10, verse 24 correctly, what it's saying is that those degrees of punishment, those levels of suffering, in the lake of fire, will be based on, part of, partially at least, on what the unbeliever fears. Because that's what God will select as the degree of punishment for 
the unbeliever. You say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I don't want to believe in a God who is wrathful. You will. You will. God doesn't care whether you... God doesn't care about your opinion, whether it's true or it's not true. What He disclosed in the the Scripture. It is true regardless of whether you believe it or not. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. Is he a God of mercy and grace and compassion? No question. The evidence is that he came as a man to die for our sins. The ultimate act of love. But make no mistake, he is also a God of wrath and judgment. And he selects the punishment for the unbeliever with extreme precision. He picks the punishment that the unbeliever dreads, and he delivers it to him. That's what we see in Isaiah 66, verse 4, and I think that's what we see in Proverbs 10, verse 24 as well. The other spot that this word dread is used in the Hebrew Scriptures, the other spot that this Hebrew word magora is used is in Psalm 34, verses 2 through 4, which is a description for the humble. Not for the unbeliever, but for the one who humbled himself in faith and believed in Yahweh. Remember, salvation is always the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's always by faith alone, in the Lord alone. In the Old Testament, it was by faith in the Lord as he revealed himself. Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, which is to say he was justified. Well, that's the Lord. That's Yahweh. That's, that, that's what the, the word is there in Genesis 15, 6. Well, today we believe in Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord in the flesh. The same method of salvation. It's an act of humility to trust in the Lord. And so we see in Psalm 34, my soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. You see the contrast, right? You see the contrast. For the unbeliever, God delivers him into his fears, into the dread that he dreads, Isaiah 66 verse 4. But for the believer, he frees him from his fears. He delivers him from his fears, not into his fears, like for the rebel. In the end, this is all about people's response to the Word of God. It's all about God's image bearers, what response God's image bearers have to God's Word. Look at the middle of verse verse 4 in chapter 66. It says, here God is speaking, and He says, I called, that's His Word, But no one answered. I spoke, that's his word, but they did not listen. And they did evil in the sight, did evil in my sight. The horrors of God's judgment came because they rejected God's word. Look at verse 5. Hear the word of Yahweh, you who tremble at his word. Now there's been a shift. Now the text has shifted. We had been seeing the fakers, the posers, the false worshipers who try and manipulate God. What an absurdity, right? I mean, you go to God with this attitude of pride and you think, God's going to be impressed with me. 
I mean, it's really stupid when we think about it. Here we've, we've, got, a, we've got a shift. We used to see in, 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 in verse 3 and verse 4, we saw the, the fake worshipers, the false worshipers. But now in verse 5, we have the true worshipers. The true worshipers, shama. That's the word there. They hear. Remember the great shama, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Or better said, Adonai Yahweh Elohenu. Shama Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. Here, shama is the great shama from Deuteronomy. They repeat it today even in its synagogue, although they pronounce Yahweh as Adonai. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone or Yahweh one. Shama means not just, oh, hey, I heard that, bonk, bonk, in one ear and out the other ear. Shama means to do something in response to the hearing. It means to obey what you have heard. <clears throat> and so that's why God says here in verse 5, here, Shama, he's speaking to his true worshipers. The world hates the true worshipers of God. Because they hate God. Keep reading in verse 5. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you from my, from my namesake, have said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your glory. <clears throat> Excuse me. The phony worshiper hates the true worshiper because the true worshiper convicts the phony worshiper by the mere existence of the true worshiper the true worshiper of god his mere her mere existence is a conviction of the false worshiper that's why the unbelieving world celebrates when a believer falls right when a believer gets involved in something that the believer shouldn't be involved in it's liberating for the unbelieving world. They're like, I feel better about that because that woman did that, that guy did that. And I knew that they were a Christian. They, 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 you know, it, was, it was clear that they were a Christian, but they've done that thing that we all know that they shouldn't have done. And now I feel better. I, the unbeliever, feel better because they did that. They feel relieved because the true worshiper's existence convicts the false worshiper. Here the phony worshiper hypocritically claims that he glorifies God. He mockingly says to the child of God, take joy in the Lord, while the false worshiper persecutes the child of God. In the end, the phony worshiper will get his comeuppance because there is always, always a reckoning. Keep reading in verse 5. God says, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of Yahweh who was rendering recompense to his enemies. Here God promises to vindicate the true worshipers. He promises to vindicate his name. This is a very, very, very important principle in the scripture that God will bring justice. If God does not vindicate the true worshiper, if God does not bring justice, then he is no God at all. You should not obey him. You should not follow him. You should not fear him. You should ridicule him. You should mock God, make fun of God if he is not the one who will bring justice. 
Because all of his promises are a joke. The word of God is a joke if he is not going to vindicate his name and vindicate those who have aligned themselves with him by faith. That is why verse 6 says that he will render recompense to his enemies. It is the Hebrew word gamul, and in this context, it means nothing less than full bridled retribution. Retribution. This is what gamul means in this context. The scripture uses a term for the event when God will bring retribution to his enemies, when God will bring recompense to his enemies. It is a phrase in the scripture that is used many, 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 many times. It's the phrase, the day of the Lord. Technically, it's the day of Yahweh. It's the day of the Lord. It's used 23 times in the Scripture as that phrase, the day of the Lord. And many, many, many other times, it's simply the day or that day or the great day. And so for the rest of this morning, we're going to spend time on the day of the Lord because it is a very important principle. And we're seeing just a snippet of it. Isaiah has spoken of it elsewhere and earlier in the book of Isaiah, but we're seeing just a snippet of it. When you see this language about recompense to his enemies, the day of the Lord is the event or the series of events where the Lord dramatically intervenes in history to either supernaturally bring judgment or supernaturally bring blessing. It is, make no mistake, the reckoning. History is marching methodically to the reckoning. Now the world kind of dismisses that. Ah, you're such a doomsdayer guy. I mean, yeah. The world blows that off, soft sells that. And that's logical. That makes sense. Right? If all you're living for is today, gimme, 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 to feed your appetites, then you want no reckoning. And the guy who says, look, God loves you. God loves you. And God loves you so much to not leave you in the condition that you are. You're the enemy of God. And God loves you. God came in the flesh. And there is a reckoning. Although God loves you, God is also a God of justice and judgment. There is a reckoning. You know, the world doesn't want to hear that message. Because that's a buzzkill. Right? That, you know, I, I, you're, 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 you're killing my, my, my joy here. Because I'm living. You're killing my appetite. You're killing my lusts. There is a reckoning, and that's what the day of the Lord is. It's the day where the Lord settles accounts on both sides of the ledger. It's primarily used to describe judgment, the day of the Lord is, but it's sometimes also used to describe blessing. The day of the Lord is directed not just to Israel, but also to all peoples, to all nations. It will have a local impact on Israel and a global impact on the planet. It is used in the Hebrew Scriptures sometimes as kind of a snippet, as kind of a, a near-term partial fulfillment. So when the prophets speak of the day of the Lord is coming and they're referring to the Babylonian conquest or they're referring to some other invasion of the peoples that are around Israel, they're speaking of the concept of the day of the Lord in a near-term context. But like so many things that the, that the prophets say, there's a near-term partial fulfillment and then there's a far-term, far, 
ultimate fulfillment. And so the day of the Lord is both. The day of the Lord has a local impact on Israel. It did in the time of the prophets. It will in the, in the end times when the Lord returns. And it will also have a global impact on the entire planet. Let me show you what I mean. And we will see this through the prophets. The prophet Zephaniah spoke of the great day, the day of the Lord, when he warned Israel about God's judgment because of their rebellion. Zephaniah 1.14, near is the great day of Yahweh, near and coming very quickly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom. Verse 17, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh. Here the Lord is speaking in third person. He says, your rebellion, your sin is the reason for my wrath on that day. Keep reading. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. This is the extreme judgment from a holy Righteous God. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, H-O-L-Y. He is entirely righteous and He is utterly other. Holy. Holy. Remember what the angels declare, what the seraphim declare in Isaiah 6 before God sends the prophet out. Remember, Isaiah is caught up in the, in the vision and he sees Yahweh on his throne with, the thro- with, with his robe exa- uh, 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 filling the, the, the throne. Yahweh's on his throne and his robe is filling the throne room, which is also the temple in heaven. Because in heaven, all power is united. Political power, religious power, it's all united. All power ultimately comes from God. But when Isaiah sees Yahweh on his throne, he sees, this is Isaiah 6, he sees the seraphim with six wings. With two wings they cover their feet, with two wings they fly, and with two wings they cover their face. They don't even look on the presence of God. Not even those sinless creatures will look on the presence of the Holy One. And so they hover almost like bees around the throne. Isaiah sees this and they say something. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Sabaoth. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Sabaoth. Over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies. And the one who is holy, the Lord of the armies, brings his righteous wrath on the day of the Lord. You say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. You will. You will. Keep reading verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy. This is saying, your money's no good here. Money can be very powerful. Money is like a tool. And money can can give you many things, can't give you happiness, can't give you salvation, but it can give you many things. Here God says, your money is meaningless in that day. In the day of reckoning, your money will be of zero value. Your silver, your gold, they will not provide you a defense from the fierce wrath of God. And this judgment we see is for all the earth. It's not just for Israel because That's the context here. 
Israel and the entire planet. The prophet Isaiah also warned of the day of the Lord, and his language is equally graphic. Isaiah 2, verse 12, For Yahweh of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. You know what abased means? We don't use that word very often. At the bottom. The base. At the bottom. This is what will happen on the day of the Lord. Why? It's because the principle that we see over and over, that God exalts the humble, and He humbles the exalted. For the day, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Men will go into the caves of the rocks and into the holes of the ground before the terror of Yahweh and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. Isaiah 13, verse 6, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment and their faces aflame. Behold, the day of Yahweh is coming, cruel with fire and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Notice that this is global, planet-type judgment. It's on the entire earth. It's not just judgment on Israel. It's Israel, unbelieving Israel, and the unbelieving world. Keep reading. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal men scarcer than pure Gold. Do you understand what he's saying? He will bring humanity to the brink of extinction on the day of reckoning, on the day of the Lord. This is a God to be feared. This is a God to be awed. This is a God to worship. This is a God to love because this love, who is a God of fierce wrath, that we deserved his judgment, this God humbled himself and came as a man because he loves us to give us a way out of the judgment that we so richly deserve. The Apostle Paul also warns of the day of the Lord. He explained that it will come unexpectedly, and he explained that it will be unescapable. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The thief doesn't send you a text saying, I'm going to be there at 1.30 tonight. Just shows up. That's the way the day of the Lord will come. Unexpectedly. Keep reading verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains on a woman with child and they will not escape. Huh. That's the same language we just read in the Old Testament. Huh. That's interesting. It's because we got the same author of all 66 books. Capital A, author. Another thing, one of the many things to, to wonder about God, that he would use well over 30 human authors 
over 30 human authors, 35, 40 human authors, over 1,500 years to write 66 books on three different continents in three different languages with the same theme, which is creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. The scriptures fit together like a hand in a glove, even though they're written by all these different authors, by dozens of different authors, many of whom didn't even know each other, who lived centuries apart. We have the same Spirit who is moving men in writing the Scripture. Keep reading in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. There will be no place to hide when the day of reckoning comes, when the day of the Lord is here. Now, the day of the Lord is not just the day of judgment. All right, you hear all this, you say, well, Pastor, you got any good news today? All right, that was judgment. Yeah, I do. The day of the Lord is not just a day of judgment. It's also a day of blessing. The prophet Joel reveals that out of the fierce judgment of the day of the Lord will come blessing. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. This is God speaking in this passage. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Joel uses the same imagery as Isaiah in describing God's wrath as the picture of rebels who are being squished like grapes by God in his winepress. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of of decision. For the day of the Lord, it's not that the people have decisions to make. The valley of decision doesn't mean that the people come to the Lord and say, hmm, hmm, will I decide for you, Lord, or will I decide against you, Lord? That's not what the valley of decision is. The valley of decision is where the Lord issues His judgment, His decision. The judge at the courthouse in the robe issues a judgment, a decision. It flows out from the bench. This is the valley of decision where the Lord issues His decision, His judgment against the rebels. And now comes the blessing. Look at verse 16. But Yahweh is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Refuge and stronghold are words of blessing, words of protection, words of security. Verse 17, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the day, that's the day of the Lord, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of Yahweh to water the valley of Shittim. These are classic, beautiful, traditional words of blessing for an agricultural culture, for an agrarian culture, for a wine culture. Wine was always the symbol of blessing, not drunkenness. Drunkenness is a serious sin. But wine was always a symbol of blessing for the kingdom. And so you hear this, you read the land dripping with wine, flowing with milk, flowing with the fresh These are all words of blessing in the day of the Lord, where the Lord will transform the planet out of the horrific, terrifying judgments of the day of the Lord will come sweet blessings for those who take refuge in Him. 
The prophet Zephaniah also speaks of blessing in the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 3.14, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. That's a reference to Jerusalem. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is the time of great blessing for Israel. Verse 16, in that day, that's the day of the Lord, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Security, lack of fear, these are great blessings that Israel will enjoy. Look at verse 17. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. These are words of blessing, tender words of blessing. Right? As, 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 what does it say? He will be quiet in his love, as, as a lover is, is tender and quiet with his lover. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. He will exult over you with joy. These are words of excitement, words of joy, words of tenderness, words of blessing, which are associated with the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord, although it's primarily used to describe God's extraordinary intervention in human events to bring judgment, it's also used to show his blessing that he will bring in extraordinary ways. The Apostle Peter describes the day of the Lord as first judgment and then blessing, a blessing for all peoples. Look at Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is part of the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. And notice, it's not just the physical elements of the earth and the heavens that are burned up. It's the works of the earth that are burned up. The sin, the evil, even the dead works of believers, right? You do something and you do it so that you can get your pride stroked. You do it, yes, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you, you do this particular thing because you want people to know how good you are how righteous you are. You don't want the praise of God. You want the praise of people. That's a dead work. You don't lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. But when you do works, which we're called to do, Ephesians 2.10, after we're saved, when you do good works, it's not a good work if you're doing it to get your pride stroked so that people think you're so amazing. It's a good work when you do it for the glory of God. When no one knows, when no one knows, what you did, and you say, God, may your name be praised. You don't even say it out loud. You think it, and then you go change your baby's diaper. That's a good work, right? You, you, you work hard at your job that the Lord may be praised. That's a good work. You're accumulating rewards, but what we're seeing here in Second Peter 3 is in the day of the Lord, in the final part of the judgment, remember the day of the Lord is not just one event, but a series of events. The final phase of the day of the Lord is the destruction of this planet, the destruction of sin, the destruction of evil, and the destruction even of dead works that believers did. That's the picture that we're getting here. They will all be 
destroyed with intense heat. They'll all be burned up. But according to Kiss promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the blessing of all blessings. In which righteousness dwells. There is but one who is righteous, Paul says. It's not you and it's not me. It's God. The blessing of all blessings is to live where God lives. Not for a thousand years or ten thousand years, but forever and ever and ever. And that blessing will make all other blessings pale in comparison. As impressive as all the other blessings are going to be. That blessing, living in the presence of the one who is love. The one who exudes and produces Joy, the one who is mercy, the one who is grace, the one who is compassion, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy. Living in his presence forever is the blessing that will trump all other blessings. The day of the Lord is the time where God brings recompense to his enemies. It's an event and it's a series of events. It's not necessarily a 24-hour period. It's the time where God intervenes in human events in an extraordinary way, either to judge or to bless. The next event on the calendar, on God's calendar, is part of the day of the Lord. It's the rapture of the church. That's part of the day of the Lord. Because the next event on the calendar is actually the blessed, part of the blessing phase of the day of the Lord, where he intervenes in human events to snatch away his church. That's what, that's what harpazo means, the Greek word. that we that The Greek word harpazo translated in the Latin rapturo. We uh, translate rapturo into English and we get rapture. Similar to raptor. What does a raptor bird do? do, do? He snatches away. So the first phase of the day of the Lord is actually a blessing phase. It's the rapture where he intervenes in human events to bring blessing for his own. And then unfolds judgment of the day of the Lord for seven years in the tribulation. Then more intense judgment at the very end of the tribulation where there is the judgment of the goats and the sheep. Matthew 24, where God eliminates all unbelievers from the planet. And then there's blessing phase of the day of the Lord. For a thousand years, only believers will enter the thousand-year reign, and they will repopulate the planet. There's going to be a baby boom of all baby booms. Blessing phase of the day of the Lord for a thousand years. Then there will be a revolution at the end of the thousand years, the Gog and Magog revolution, which we read about in Revelation 20, which God will, which Jesus will destroy, calling fire from heaven to destroy them. Then there will be the final phase of the day of the Lord, which is a judgment phase, casting all unbelievers in the lake of fire, casting the devil into the lake of fire, destroying this planet, destroying the universe, and making a new one, a new planet, earth, and a new universe, and then forever. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I wanted to spend a few minutes today, I guess 30 minutes today, 
on the day of the Lord because it is an important principle and we see just a glimpse of it, just a glimpse of it in our passage here in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 6. You see the glimpse through this language about he will bring recompense to his enemies. There is a reckoning coming. Excited about that. Because the reckoning is on both sides of the ledger. It's not just a reckoning of judgment. It's also a reckoning of blessing. Look, I wish there wasn't judgment for the unbeliever. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It makes my spine tingle. The idea that my loved ones, many of, many of my family members, many of my friends will be in judgment. I fear that. I wish it wasn't in the text. I wish it wasn't true. But it is. And he is God and I am not. And you are not. So we accept the God who is. We don't recraft God to make a Build-A-Bear God. You know what a Build-A-Bear God is? Right? When the kids go to the Build-A-Bear store, they get their, you know, you can pick, oh, I want a, a, a shape of a bear that's blue. Oh, yeah, 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 some stuffing. I'll take some green eyes on that bear, and I'll take some hearts maybe as like buttons on the bear. You make your own bear at Build-A-Bear, and you go to the clerk, and you pay your dollars, and you walk away with your own bear. God is not a Build-A-Bear God. God is God, and we are not. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you as fallen, broken sinners. Break us of our pride. Break us of our appetite to wander from you. Help us obey you. Help us approach you in awe and wonder. Help us fear you. Help us love you. Yet we pray all these things recognizing that we have our own free will and we make our own choices so we do not blame you in any way for our own rebellion against you, but we do ask for your help in all these things. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.